Hey everyone, and welcome back to Inside the Morgue. We're your hosts and radiant autopsy techs, Jess and Alice. This week we watched The Body Farm, Season 1, Episode 4. We're going to talk about blood spatter and genetically modified infectious diseases, and we have a pretty wild true crime to talk to you about. So, without further ado, let's get into it. We open on Eve Lockhart, our show's pathologist, and part of her team is driving to a scene as they're listening to news reports about a violent outbreak and one known death at Langdon Valley Prison. We see cutscenes of rioting that was happening at the prison, and we learn that the prison is an open prison for women offenders, and until now it had a pretty calm reputation. So this makes the sudden outbreak of violence and rioting very surprising. When Eve gets to the scene at the prison, the detectives tell her that the decedent's name is Beth Fox, and someone had gotten into her cell last night and slashed her throat. The detective also says the body is a complete mess. As the team walks inside, there's still rioting happening around them, and women are even on the roof throwing things off. So Eve gets in and asks the governor how someone could just get into Beth's cell, and the governor explains that this is an open prison system, so they have their own keys. So for anyone who doesn't know, an open prison is like a jail in which the prisoners are trusted to complete their sentences with minimal supervision and perimeter security, and they're often not locked up in their cells like how maximum security systems are. So I don't think that there's any open prison systems in the U.S., Although I was reading and they mm-hmm. did do some experiments with this back in the 40s, but this was very short-lived. Oh, wow. Yeah, I was just going to ask. I wasn't sure if there were any in the U.S. Yeah, they tried it back in the 40s and they did it for a few weeks. And I think that people got too comfortable and were continuing to be violent. So it obviously was not working. Leave it to America. Yeah. <laughs> so the detective says that they do have one suspect and the victim had a spat the previous night with another prisoner named Nicole Henderson. They have CCTV footage of Nicole hitting Beth over the head with a pool cue. It was a nasty hit. Yeah, like, that scene was, I was not expecting that. It gave me a headache. Like, you just see the little clip of CCTV footage, but damn. <laughs> I. <laughs> it was rough. Yeah. <laughs> They approach Beth's room and they pass more rioters in the adjacent hallway that they're being held off by bodyguards in, and Beth's room was locked from the outside, and after Beth's body was found, her room was searched, and there was no key in the in the cell. So Eve and the team approach the body. Beth looks beaten and swollen, and her throat is slashed. I gotta say, she she almost looked like she was getting to the bloat stage but wasn't quite she was like very purple and discolored like her tongue was protruding from her mouth which is kind of accurate to how some dead bodies that come into our morgue are that's what i was thinking too i was like is she decomp because like they got like the bloated belly Mm -hmm. really done well for like if they were trying to portray an early bloat stage decomp that's what that was my immediate first thought even like you said the tongue out thing the way they did this, I don't know if this was an actress or if it was like some kind of really good dummy they were using, but the face looked like a dead person's face. Like sometimes you can it tell did. when someone's acting dead that they're, I mean, clearly people on TV, if they're acting dead, they're not actually dead. But like her face with the the way her tongue was, like you could tell like her jaw was like in rigor and her tongue was like between her teeth. It was, it was really good. It was very well done. Yeah. So they bring the body back to the body farm for autopsy. 
Eve says that she has never seen bruising like this before. Beth's stomach is swollen and distended, so maybe that's that's more of what it was than bloat. But they did, it looked really good either way. In our line of work, you see a big stomach like that and you automatically just think it's gas and bloating from all the decomps we've mm-hmm. seen. We've been traumatized. <laughs> We're like, oh, <laughs> it's gonna smell. I don't want to cut it. <laughs> I don't want to cut this person. Eve says that she has seen swelling like this before. She saw it after a body was left in front of a gas fire for a week and says that it blew up like a beach ball. So see, she thought of bloating too. She thought of decomp yeah. bloating. Yeah. Very common in our line of work, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Eve sees no signs outwardly of sexual assault, but does see rice water diarrhea staining. So this is just a like a watery, grayish, cloudy stool often seen in, like, bacterial infectious patients. At the scene, the tech notices a pool of blood on Beth's bed, and and under her bed did not have any spray pattern, which indicates to them that the heart had already stopped pumping when the artery was cut. So I think I give this a green flag, because obviously when your heart stops beating, there is no blood to pump, so there would not be, like, a normal spray pattern for like blood yeah there won't be like an aggressive burst of right. blood it would just kind of like drip it'll like down. drip out and pool yeah so best carotid artery was cut after death eve is more confused because why would someone cut the carotid when she was already dead and there's no signs of defensive wounds or a struggle on best body best body has evenly distributed bruising over 80 percent of her body with no clear trauma sites the tech assisting Eve finds a wound on top of Beth's head, which seems to align with the story that she was hit over the head with a pool cue earlier that day. Back at the prison, the detective is asking the governor about Nicole. He says that Nicole is a nightmare and always challenging authority. He says that Nicole had a girlfriend at the prison until Beth came along and broke it all up. The girlfriend's name is Tess Williams. The detective goes to talk to Nicole and ask about what happened to cause the fight between her and Beth that, that, that caused Nicole to hit her with a pool cue. Nicole says Beth is insecure and takes it out on people she's close to. She says that Beth and Tess had an argument and that she, Nicole, decided to step in. The detective isn't buying it. Nicole tells him to ask Tess himself. She says Tess is up on the rooftop with some of the other rioters. She says Tess isn't violent, but that she does what she wants, and she's not frightened of anything or anybody. She tells him she wouldn't kill anybody and that she doesn't hold that kind of grudge. So then we see this flashback scene of Nicole and some other woman cornering Beth in the bathroom, and Nicole tells Beth that everybody works for everybody else in there. So if you've got a deal happening, you've got to share. Tess walks in and tells Nicole to leave Beth alone and to not take out their breakup on her. So then... Back in normal time, the techs were investigating Beth's room and they take her clothes for examination. They also find two different hair samples on the pillow and they need to do a DNA comparison. The governor tells them that the prisoner's DNA is on the police database. The detective asks the governor to send him anything he has on Beth, Tess, and Nicole. The detective says that he needs to speak with Tess because she's a suspect. So back at the body farm, Eve's on the phone with the techs at the scene and tells them that whoever killed Beth may have her traces of blood on their clothes. So also, the stab wound on Beth's neck doesn't look like it was a stab wound. It kind of looks more like a careful incision. So just background, a stab 
when you're using a knife tends to have clean cut edges with one or both ends appearing pointed and a stab also often has a fishtail appearance, very different from like an incision. So she thinks that something small was used like a modeling knife and Eve is still confused why Beth had so much bruising but no impact sites. Back at the prison, one of the techs is taking a blood sample from Nicole. The tech seems frightened, and Nicole asks if she would be scared if she saw her just on the street. The tech says she wouldn't see her on the street because she's in prison. But Nicole says that she does get to leave to go to work since they are in an open prison after all. She says she works at a chippy, and I loved I loved this detail because I'm... <laughs> I'm about to sound like that one girl who like studied abroad one time and doesn't shut up about it, but I've been to Scotland <laughs> twice. And <laughs> she doesn't shut up about I it. I don't shut up about it. <laughs> <laughs> and um I loved hearing the term chippy cuz it's like a place you can get fish and chips from my limited understanding. I don't eat fish, but I did go to a chippy in Scotland called Chippy Doo in the Lane and it's supposed to sound like chippy down the lane and it was down this like cute little lane and Costa went and enjoyed some fish and chips. I had mac and cheese, but I loved when she's like, I work at a chippy. And I was like, I love. That's cool. I love the <laughs> slang. Yeah. So Nicole works at a chippy and she said that Beth worked at a cafe on the river and that Tess works for a cleaning company. Nicole says they all stand by each other in that place and that she is someone who stands by people. She says Tess can be so focused and single-minded and that she'd have to be that way to do what she did to, quote, be put in there in the first place. The tech ends up finding footage of Tess in a counseling session, and on the video, Tess is saying she feels alone most of the time and that her studies are a way of smuggling something real and good inside her. She says math is a window into another world. We cut to another tech in Tess's room, and there are lots of photos of her graduating and photos of her and Nicole, and some photos with Beth too, and some photos of a woman we don't recognize. But there are also lots of science and math textbooks. Eve is still examining Beth's body, and she notes that some of the arterioles on Beth's skin have burst close to the surface, which explains this weird bruising pattern. But they still don't know what is causing this damage. It doesn't look like anything chemical, and the tox is still running. A tech suggests that maybe it was a natural toxin. There are some things around the prison like moonseed, monkshood, and wolfsbane. So moonseed is sometimes used as a laxative, and monkshood and wolfsbane are basically the same thing. Uh, I knew that from Harry Potter. <laughs> it's in the first one. They talk about Monkshood and Wolfsbane. So these are aconite, which often cause symptoms of nausea, vomiting, dizziness, and sometimes death. They look more closely at the books in Tess's room shelf to see if there's anything indicating she knew something about these plants. And the governor tells them that Tess is very smart and she earned a PhD in math while in the prison system. He also tells them that when she was 16, she was treated for psychosis and some delusional something or other. It seems like he really cares about he this. nailed it right on the head there. <laughs> yeah. And then she was brought back into the general prison population. He goes on to say that her younger sister had cystic fibrosis and Tess thought that her sister wouldn't survive if she wasn't with her every 24 hours. So cystic fibrosis affects the cells that produce mucus, sweat, and digestive juices. It causes these fluids to become like thick and sticky, and they can plug up tubes and ducts and passageways in the body, making it hard to breathe. So Tess took care of her sister until one day she just apparently snapped and tried to suffocate her to put her out of her misery. Back at the farm, Eve says that rice water diarrhea and poor skin tuger are signs of vibrio cholerae, 
which the bacteria screen came back positive for. So Beth had cholera. So cholera is a bacterial disease causing diarrhea, dehydration, and it's usually spread in water. It is fatal when not treated right away. So we see another one of these flashbacks in the show of Tess and Beth coming back from work a little late. Then they talk to Nicole, who says that if they keep cutting it so close, Ryan, the governor guy at the prison, will get them into trouble. Nicole says if they pretend to sign up for college evening classes, they could get more time outside of the prison. And she knows people who will sign them up and she could cover for them when they actually weren't in class. But she says that she wants money in exchange for helping them. She thinks that what they're doing is out there making extra money, so she wants in on whatever they're doing. Back to present day, this governor guy, Ryan, is nervous about Beth having cholera and asks how infectious it is. The tech tells him it doesn't pass from person to person. It passes from food and water, so the kitchens at the facility have to close. So this is true. A person can get cholera by drinking water or eating food that is contaminated. So the tech says they should only drink water from bottles, and that they need to get blood samples from all the inmates and the staff. The guards go up to the roof to get tests so that the detective can interrogate her. They very violently take these women off the roof and through the stairwell. Like, they were like... They did not care about their well-being. They just fully went in and, like, were beating them with batons. I was like, what? (laughs) But, surprise, surprise, Tess is not actually up there with them. They get a match on the hair sample found on Beth's pillow, and it matches Tess. So... They can place Tess in Beth's cell at the scene of the crime, but they can't place where Tess is right now. She wasn't on the roof like Nicole said she was, and she didn't go to work that day either. The detectives asked if the prison had contacted next to Kin to see if she was with them, but Tess's parents are both dead, and as far as they know, she's had no contact with her sister, Caitlin, since she's been in the prison system. The prison officials say that since cholera is what killed Beth, they don't need to do a homicide investigation anymore. But Eve arrives at the prison to collect water samples to test for cholera and tries to explain that cholera doesn't cause the kind of bruising and swelling she saw on Beth's body. The prison officials ask how long Tess will have if she has cholera too, and Eve says that the strain of cholera that Beth had was closest to LTOR-01, which is a Haitian strain which can kill from anywhere between 2 to 48 hours. The detective goes back to question Nicole and asks if she was lying about Tess being on the roof and if the whole riot was just to cause a diversion so that Tess could escape. Nicole shrugs and says that Tess didn't tell her anything. Eve swabs a fecal sample from around the inside of Tess's toilet to test for DNV because if she has cholera, this would come up in her feces, which is also true. Back at the body farm, we see a tech watching a video of the counseling session with Tess where she says she would kill her sister again, or try to kill her sister again, if she could. She said her sister was in too much pain and her parents were both dead now, so her sister and her care was her sole responsibility. We then cut to Tess, present day, out on the street, having escaped prison. She goes to a payphone and calls her sister. It goes to an answering machine at first, and it says, Ben and Kat aren't here right now, but then Caitlin answers the phone. Tess hangs up and leaves the phone booth. Back at the prison, the prison officials bring Eve back in and ask once again if this was a homicide. Eve explains that cholera killed Beth, but that her carotid was cut post-mortem. She says that it is difficult to answer because she can't give an absolute yes or no. She doesn't even know how the cholera got in the building, and it's not behaving the way she would have expected cholera to act. The prison officials are getting frustrated that she can't give them an answer because the press is now hounding them for answers. Eve says she would suggest getting someone else if they want someone who would just make something up without any evidence just to make the press happy. 
And she says once they find out if the other inmates are infected, they will be the first to know. Back at the farm, the fecal matter in Tess's toilet tested positive for V. cholera. Eve says Tess has a few hours at most if they can't get to her, and that's depending on if the antibiotics even work on this strain. The food and water in the prison tested negative, so they didn't get infected through the prison. They had to have picked it up somewhere outside the prison. We cut to Tess's sister Caitlin getting in the van when Tess pops up and tells her sister to move over, and she jumps right into the driver's seat. At the farm, a tech's trying to figure out where Tess and Beth could have gotten cholera. They both have jobs outside the prison, but they don't work together, so it probably wasn't from work. They likely got it from the same source. The detective gets Caitlin's address and goes to her house. Caitlin isn't home, and her boyfriend said that she was supposed to be home a while ago. The detective calls Eve and tells her that he thinks that Tess went to go see Caitlin to do whatever it was that she failed to do years ago. Back in the van with Caitlin and Tess... Tess asks Caitlin who's taking care of her now, and Caitlin says that she's taking care of herself. She tells Tess that what happened when they were children happened, and they both had to deal with the consequences. Caitlin says that even after all the prison time and psychiatrists, it's still in Tess. Caitlin says she survived Tess before, she beat her, and she's still there. Tess says that Caitlin isn't her responsibility, and Caitlin says that's not true. Back at the farm, a tech is saying that she found some debris in Tess's cell that contained dandelion seeds. Another tech says that the cholera strain that they're dealing with is what geneticists call a donkey, meaning that it was man-made. It's not a natural strain of the disease, and the bacteria was deactivated to make it safe when modified to carry medication directly to a target. So I kind of, sorry, I kind of nerded out at this moment because I used to do, before I got into forensics, this is kind of what I did. You would do like deactivated stuff to make? Yeah, the it wasn't to make medicine. I, our company that I worked for made deactivated bacteria, virus, and fungal stuff that could be used to as like a positive testing control so like say you needed to get tested for strep throat but the doctor needs to know what a positive test on like a certain biotech instrument would look like we would make a safe non-infectious strain of that strep virus that they could test their machine with first before testing like patient samples so They were talking about like, oh, it's a deactivated thing. And I'm like, oh, my God, I kind of used to do that. (laughs) That's super cool. And I I know that you used to do that, but I love hearing about it. (laughs) So the tech thinks that this was just an experiment to see how the modified bacteria would react to being injected. So the cholera was somehow reactivated when it was introduced to Tess and Beth. So back in the van with Tess and Caitlin, Caitlin says that Tess is going to be fine and that she's on the transplant list. Tess asks what will happen if she doesn't get a transplant and says it will just be more infectious and more painful. Caitlin says that it's her decision to make and that it's her life. Tess says that she needs to be able to leave and escape, but she won't leave until she knows that Caitlin has someone to look after her. Caitlin says that she is with someone she loves and he loves her too. Tess goes on to say that the responsibility that she felt for her sister became like an obsession for her the last few years. She wants Caitlin to know that she only ever wanted to help her. As she's talking, we notice that the skin on Tess's neck and chest is becoming red and bruised like how Beth's was. So Tess tells Caitlin that she's right and that it's time to move on, and she lets Caitlin out of the car. 
So we cut back to the body farm and they found a plant material on Beth's clothes and they're going to test it to see if it matches the dandelion seeds that were found in Tess's room. Eve goes to talk to an expert geneticist about the genetically modified cholera. They tell him that they found it post-mortem in a patient and he seems stunned that it was contracted in this country. They also show him a picture of Beth, but he doesn't recognize her. He doesn't recognize Tess either, but he agrees to help them. I thought he was going to recognize Tess. I was like, oh my I god. I was waiting she for the did plot a, twist. I was like, she did her PhD. She must have gone to this university. Maybe he was like, he showed her how to do stuff. No, he had no idea who she was. <laughs> it, it was like very interesting. He's like, yeah, I don't know her. <laughs> I thought he was going to be like, yeah, she was one of my students. And I'd be like, oh, no. He didn't. <laughs> no, didn't know her. Just then, Eve and the detective get a call to go to the prison because they found another inmate who tested positive for cholera, the same strain as Tess and Beth. And guess, it's Nicole. The detective guesses correctly that the reason Tess stabbed Beth post-mortem was that so she could tell Nicole that they had gotten into a fight and that she had accidentally killed Beth. She did this so that Nicole would help her create a distraction, which is like the riots, to escape the prison. Nicole seems confused as to why Tess would lie to her, and they tell Nicole that Beth died from cholera and that she has it too. They also tell her that Tess also has it and is out now with it. Nicole asks why she would leave if she knew she had cholera because she like could have gotten help in the prison. And the detective guesses that maybe she didn't want to live without Beth and that she wanted to see her sister before she died. He tells Nicole that the longer they don't know where Tess is, the less chance Tess has of surviving. Nicole tells them that Tess got Beth and her involved in drug trials and she doesn't know what they were for. We see a flashback of Tess and Beth in Beth's room, and Beth's looking bad from the cholera, and Tess wants to get her help. Beth says if this gets out, Tess will go back to the maximum security prison, and they'll never see each other again. She says to wait until the morning till they can go out and get help. Tess agrees and tells Beth to get some rest, and then they both lay down. So we cut back to the body farm, and they're discussing how the cholera attacks primarily in the small intestine and not the lungs, which is a green flag, because this is true. The deadly effects of the disease are the result of a toxin the bacteria produces in the small intestine. But when they checked Beth's lungs, there was a massive concentration of V. cholera in there. So the genetically modified cholera was engineered to carry the medicine to the lungs, which makes sense because Tessa's sister has cystic fibrosis. So the drug trial must have been for treatments of CF. One of the texts says that V. cholera was used for two reasons. One, because it's fast acting, and two, because CF sufferers have a natural resistance to it, so it's a safe option. They can carry the cholera in their blood and not actually suffer from the disease. So this is true for a lot of people too. Most people exposed to cholera bacterium often don't become ill and they don't even know that they've been infected. So Tess was not a threat. She was only involved in this to help her sister. They check to see if there is anyone in the nearby university study studying cystic fibrosis so they can figure out where the drug trial was happening, and right now no one is doing any public research on it, but a Dr. Fields ran out of money last year doing CF research, so they think that she might have been doing some hidden trials. They go to the university and Dr. Fields denies knowing anything about this. They tell her that they need her help because one woman has already died and two more are in danger. She finally tells them that she met Tess when she tutored her during her first degree. 
The cleaning company that Tess worked for had a contract at the university, so she had bumped into Tess recently. She says she was perfecting a system for delivering medication. She says that she told Tess that it was unregistered, but it was to help her sister. She says she deactivated the modified cholera before injecting it into the subjects because they don't have CF and therefore have no natural immunity. She says that she would have stopped the trial if she knew the bacteria would be reactive. They tell Dr. Fields that the cholera strain is not reacting to any of the usual treatments. She tells them to try a combination of a high dose of tetromethoprin and sulfamethoxazole. She also tells them that she paid Nicole. She didn't pay Beth or Tess because they weren't in it for the money. We see a flashback of Tess waking up next to Beth, and Beth is unresponsive. Back at the farm, they found a match between the plant debris on Beth's clothes and the debris in Tess's cell. They identified it as Terrazaxgum, a.k.a. a dandelion. They know that Beth had a job at a cafe near a river where this particular dandelion would grow. The team goes out to search, and they find Tess's body underneath a tree of the dandelions, which we find out is a spot where she and Beth would spend time together. And that's kind of the end of this episode. Yeah, you kind of see, like, there's a voiceover of Eve, like, summing up everything that we saw in this episode, and you see the the professor, the doctor who had run the unregistered trial, is, like, on trial now. But you never see if Nicole recovered. Yeah, they just totally left that part out. I'm assuming she did because they never showed us a body. I'll just assume that she recovered and that the bacteria, the antibiotics worked on her and that they just didn't get to test in time. I'm going to assume there was a happy ending. There's a happy ending for Nicole. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Having this episode involve a mystery of engineered infectious disease made us think of the case of Joan Robinson Hill. So Joan was a socialite and equestrian, and she competed in national equestrian events. And Joan married John Hill, a plastic surgeon, in 1957. The Hills became a regular part of the Houston, Texas social scene, but seemed to lead very separate lives. For the first six years of their marriage, the couple lived on Joan's father, who was named Ash Robinson's property. After they moved, Joan continued to focus on her equestrian career while John spent his time performing and listening to music. On June 14, 1960, the couple had a son named Robert Ashton Hill, and Joan's father, Ash, bought her a farm after she told him of her ambition to continue raising horses and starting her own riding school. The property was named Chatsworth Farm and opened in 1963 and became the location of annual spring picnics hosted by the Hills for the Houston doctors and their families. This whole family is just loaded. <laughs> like They sound so rich and so, like out of my league of people I would ever associate myself with. These are words that would never come up in, like, my everyday, like, discussions. I don't think I've ever discussed equestrians or... uh, It's crazy. In 1965, the Hills also bought a colonial-style house located in the wealthy neighborhood of River Oaks, just a few blocks away from Joan's family. John Hill asked his father-in-law, Ash, for a loan of $10,000 to build a music room in his and Joan's new home. Just a small loan. Just a small loan of $10,000. When Ash denied this request, John arranged for a bank loan and commissioned a sound engineer to create this music room. And by March of 1969, the room was complete 
and cost way more than anticipated for a total of $100,000. And this is back in 1969. So I don't even know what that would be today, but it would be insane. Are you going to look it up? I need to look it I'm up. going to look it up. Let's see how much that would be in 2024 money. 100000 in 1960 has the same purchasing power as nearly a million in 2024. Just casual for a music room. Wow. So meanwhile... Joan's passion project at Chatsworth's farm was not really turning a profit. And starting in 1968, the Hills began to have significant conflicts in their marriage. John was having an affair with a woman named Anne Kurth that started in 1968. Shortly after meeting Anne, John left Joan a note saying that he was leaving her because things were not good in their marriage. Can you imagine ending a marriage with a note? A note? That's like breaking up over text. Oh my god, that's the present day equivalent. Of sending a text message. (laughs) Two weeks after John left, John met with Joan, and Joan learned that John had been staying with Anne, but he had started renting an apartment shortly after. In November of that year, John served her with divorce papers. Ash had hired detectives to investigate his son-in-law. I'm just getting vibes that Ash was, like, never really a fan of John. He wouldn't give him the small $10,000 loan. No. He's getting detected. I mean, I wouldn't be a fan of my daughter's husband either if I found out he was having an affair and left her a note about it. Right? He didn't like this man from the start. I don't blame him. I like Ash. I think he's got good intuition. Joan told her father that she still wanted to make the marriage work despite her husband's unfaithfulness, and she contested the divorce. So in December of that year, Ash called John for a meeting. Ash had written a letter of apology and reconciliation offer to his daughter that he wanted John to sign. John was in debt to Robinson for the household that he had bought for the couple and other professional expenses. And Ash Robinson implied that he would start pressuring John to make repayments should he refuse to sign this letter to Joan. John signed the letter and withdrew his divorce petition and the couple reconciled just before Christmas of that year. But John continued his affair with Anne even after moving back in with Joan. So shortly before the Hills were expected to have house guests stay with them, Joan learned that John had kept his apartment and was still having an affair with Anne. So these two house guests would later say that while they were staying with the Hills, John would bring home pastries every day, but he would be very particular about who ate what pastry. Like he would be very particular about handing them out. Joan hosted her house guests and some other friends one night, for a game of bridge and the group of four played in john's music room which would be about a million dollar music room in today's money john came down and listened to music at the other end of the room which i just think sounds so awkward especially when you yeah yeah especially when you take into the fact that while they were playing bridge joan was talking to her friends about how she was planning to consult a lawyer that monday to divorce john and take him out of the will and just imagine he's sitting in the corner. <laughs> like, but this is like a, a million dollar room. So maybe it's a huge room. Yeah. And he can't hear. But I would still. If I was a guest and the person who invited me over is talking shit about their husband while the husband's in the room talking about divorcing, I would be so uncomfortable. I always get so uncomfortable whenever people try to bring me in the middle of their, like, relationship drama. Like, I have secondhand embarrassment for these people. Like, when people try to bring me in on their relationship drama and I just want to be like, you just shouldn't be together. 
guys, I don't know what to tell you. Like, that's how I would feel like I, this doesn't seem, and then nice seems possible. very unhealthy <laughs> for be everyone other. involved. Like, I, and I'm so uncomfortable in those situations. And this is like times a thousand. So it gets even stranger because while all this is happening, John put on a particularly romantic record in his corner of the music room and goes over to where the women are playing cards and goes over to Joan and the couple share a dance. So like in front of her friends, like he's like, hey, come dance. Ew. So Joan told her friends the next morning that John had made her very happy the previous night and that he had said things to her that she had never heard a man say before and that she thought things would be all right between them. I want to know what he said. I don't want to divorce you, maybe. <laughs> I, But she, if, if she was about to get a lawyer and like take him out of the will and he said something to make her change her mind, I want to know what it was. She also told her friends that John had given her a pill the night before that had knocked her out. She spent most of the following morning vomiting. And after checking on her several times, John told the house guest that he was going out to get her medicine. Over the weekend, Joan remained very ill, and on Monday, March 17th, when the guests were leaving, they went to say goodbye to Joan in her sick room, and Joan said that she was just very dehydrated and she just needed some water. Later, Effie Green, the Hill's maid, was told that Joan was very ill and was to not disturb her for any reason. But the next morning, Effie went to check on Joan and found her in a soiled nightgown. She moved Joan to help her get cleaned up and found Joan had been lying in dried feces. Two towels had been placed under her due to her loose stool, and they also appeared to contain blood. Joan's mother came to visit her daughter, and she was dropped off by John, who did not inform her that Joan was so ill. So Joan's mother saw how ill her daughter was and that she had a fever, and John told her that she would take Joan to the hospital. And so he took her to the hospital... But he took her to one that was 45 minutes away and had no ER or ICU. So at the hospital, it was determined that Joan was in shock. Dr. Walter Bertineau was named Joan's attending physician. And John had told this doctor that his wife had nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. And originally, Bertineau initially thought that she was suffering from the flu. But once he saw Joan for himself, he ordered IV fluids and believed that she had contracted a foodborne illness. However, he decided to consult a colleague just in case to get a second diagnosis, and Dr. Frank Lanza believed that Joan was in septic shock. So the doctors ordered blood cultures, but these would take 72 hours to process. And six hours after being admitted, Joan's kidneys began to fail, and her condition was described as grave. A kidney specialist was called to consult and determined that Joan was in severe kidney failure. And this hospital did not have a dialysis machine, and it was discussed and debated whether or not Joan should be transferred. However, the kidney specialist believed that she was too ill to be transferred. Joan's condition didn't improve, but they were able to stabilize her for a few hours. But ultimately, on March 19th at 2.30 a.m., the attending nurse went to check on Joan and saw that her vital signs indicated that she was in heart failure. Joan tried to speak, but her mouth filled with blood. The resident tried to save her with adrenaline right into her heart, but it was unsuccessful and Joan passed away. Texas state law at the time required an autopsy of anyone who died within 24 hours of admission, and Dr. Bertineau told John Hill this, but John still called a funeral home and had Joan taken away to be embalmed less than four hours after her death. The hospital pathologist did go to the funeral home to conduct an autopsy, but because she had been embalmed, 
There was no signs to indicate what killed her other than a darkened maroon pancreas, so the pathologist attributed Joan's death to pancreatitis. However, Joan's father, Ash, believed that John had killed her and consulted another doctor who said it was unlikely that pancreatitis was the cause of death. So the second pathologist was called in for a second autopsy, which was conducted before the funeral. The pathologist ordered the blood and urine samples from the hospital to be handed over before going to the funeral home to view the body. This pathologist ruled the cause of death likely to be acute focal hepatitis with a viral origin. However, Ash still felt that his daughter was murdered, and he hired a lawyer to petition to have Joan's body exhumed for a third autopsy. He hired New York medical examiner Dr. Milton Halpern, and the autopsy was conducted by a team of 10 doctors. This autopsy took seven and a half hours, and it was concluded that Joan had a massive infection of unknown origin. Cause of death was eventually listed as meningitis and sepsis. Also in this report, Dr. Halpern said that John Hill's delay in seeking medical treatment for his wife were factors in her death. After Joan died, John Hill married Anne Kurth. They divorced less than a year later, shortly before John was indicted for Joan's murder. Ash had accused John of poisoning his daughter and petitioned the DA to launch a murder investigation. A grand jury heard testimony from Anne Kurth, who testified that John had tried to kill her on three separate occasions and that he had also confessed to her that he killed Joan. The jury voted to indict John Hill for murder by omission because he had, quote, willfully, intentionally, and culpably contributed to his wife's death because he had not sought out significant medical help. The trial began February 15, 1971. Anna Kurth testified against John, stating that he had attempted to kill her in June of 1969 by crashing their car into a bridge and also by injecting her with a hypodermic syringe. She told the court that he had also confessed to killing Joan, and she went into detail about how he had allegedly done it by lacing pastries with infectious bacteria and later injecting her directly with the bacteria. This testimony contradicted the murder by omission charge against John Hill, and as a result, his attorney was granted a request for a mistrial. On September 24, 1972, just a few weeks before the second trial was set to begin, John Hill was murdered in his home by a masked gunman during a robbery. Bobby Wayne Vandiver was arrested for John Hill's murder in April 1973. A grand jury voted to indict Vandiver and an accomplice, and a trial date was set for September of that year. It was later rescheduled to April 1974, but Vandiver failed to appear and had apparently adopted a fake name and just failed to appear in court. One of his accomplices, though, was sentenced to 35 years in prison for shooting a police officer, but died in prison for breast cancer. This case has been the subject of Thomas Thompson's 1976 book, Blood and Money, and was also made into a made-for-TV movie titled Murder in Texas. And we will also be linking the Wikipedia page because it's absolutely insane. Three autopsies? Three? And a seven and a half hour, the third, the exhumed body was seven and a half hours long for doing this autopsy with 10 doctors. 10 oh my God. doctors, seven and a half hours. I want to, I want to be the tech on that. Oh my God. Right? That's insane. And then he was murdered. Plot twist. <laughs> and then there was a, and then 
there was another murder that the different guy was involved in that he got in jail. It was insane. I was like, how are there still more murders happening? So many murders. It was, <laughs> it's crazy. Damn. Could you imagine going out through a bacteria infection? No, I don't want to think about that. That's awful. She didn't deserve that. No, she didn't. She deserved better. And I'm glad that her father was, like, fighting for her. Yeah. Until the very end. He, like, he didn't like any of these answers. And, like, in his heart, he was like, this is not how she died. I know it. Yeah. And, I mean, granted, he did have the money and privilege that most people don't have to yeah. fight for these answers. Because he, like, knew the deep. Because exhuming a body is so expensive. He paid for two private autopsies. I can't, right? Especially in, like, in the 70s. I can't imagine how expensive it was back then the private autopsy with 10 doctors mm-hmm. had to be insanely expensive uh, yeah especially because i think it said too that he took tissue samples and other stuff so he had to have done like histology and like other testing which costs money he did probably set yeah. up for talks uh, he just shouldn't this person just sorry john shouldn't have been stupid and sus and ex- and embalmed her four hours after death that's a well he's a walking red flag yeah i think that was everybody's first red flag was like you knew not to do that i want to read this book now i want to watch the movie i want to watch the <laughs> tv movie maybe we'll watch it and we'll talk about it <laughs> damn this episode and true crime story i think are one of the in like our top five of most insane stories yeah this this true crime i immediately i thought because i thought the show when i first started watching it I thought Tess was going to be doing, like, experimental infectious disease things and was using, like, Beth as, like, the guinea pig, and that's how she died. So I was like, oh, she probably injected her with something or made her eat something, and it ended up not being that. But it still made me think of this case of Joan Robinson Hill's tragic death. And then we never, he never even went to trial. He was murdered. Because so he, he never just had really to go got, get murdered. He got murdered. And I think... He was on his third marriage when he got murdered because he, he married Joan, he married Anne Kurth, and then they divorced less than a year later, and then he married somebody else who was also there when the robbery happened, but I don't think she died. I love that Anne was like, oh yeah, he tried to kill me multiple times. Yeah, he probably didn't show his true colors until they were married, and then she's like, oh no. I'm in too deep, I can't get out. Uh, this is dangerous. I'm glad she got out. I mean, not great that she was having an affair with him, but I'm glad. Mm-hmm. She she also didn't get murdered. I'm glad. I mean, allegedly murdered. He was never convicted, but I convict him. <laughs> <laughs> I will be judge. Do you jury have and that <laughs> authority? According to this podcast, I do. <laughs> <laughs> so to end this episode, we tallied a total of two green flags and zero red flags. Wow! Unless you count John. John's a red flag, but he wasn't in the episode. He was. He wasn't in the episode. So in our opinion, this episode of The Body Farm does pass in terms of forensic accuracy. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Morgue. If you enjoy this podcast and want to learn more about forensics, keep on listening. You can find us on Instagram and feel free to DM us anything you want to talk about. We'll be back next week for a brand new dissection. 